All right, uh, mic check. Is the uh, sound on? Am I on the speakers? Okay. Am I actually recording now? Oh, wow. Okay, great. Have a substitute uh, sound engineer. It's a, the prettiest sound engineer we've had in a long, long time. That's All right. Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16 this morning. We uh, got a good start on this last week, I thought, dealing with the uh, unjust steward, the unrighteous steward, and uh, his business shenanigans and uh, how it is that we view it as uh, something a bit shady and uh, inappropriate. And yet the master of the slave praises him for it. And beyond the master's idea, of course, you know, nothing tells us whether he's righteous or unrighteous himself. His steward is unrighteous. We don't know about him. Uh, beyond the master's opinion is the Lord's opinion when he steps out of the um, when he steps out of the parable and actually offers additional application to his disciples, and that's what we want to focus on here today, so we can make our own application as well. All right, Luke 16. Before we begin, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, so that as believer priests we can uh, sanctify our time and dedicate our minds to his study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege we have once again this morning to assemble together to receive instruction. Father, thank you for uh, a warm building in which to sit while the weather turns cold out there. We thank you for this opportunity. Uh, We also thank you for the work that's underway over on Cross Park Drive. And we uh, continue to lift that up before you for your ongoing blessings. Father, the uh, for safety and uh, blessings on the workers that are using all that heavy equipment and, and uh, doing what they're doing over there. And uh, not only safety, but uh, precision that uh, they will put in a safe structure for us to, uh, to occupy once the project is complete. Father, we're also in your hands for the continued provision of financial needs. And uh, you understand that as well, Father. So we're leaving it with you and we're excited to see uh, what you choose to do with that. And we thank you. Bless our time now, Father, as we evaluate a a passage of Scripture that does deal with financial matters. Uh, Help us to understand what is uh, uh, not to be imitated in terms of the godless, but what is to be recognized as uh, the impact of this message. So teach us, Father. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. You say, Pastor, how can we learn from the example of an unbeliever? Well, Scripture says we can Scripture says that we can find instruction in a variety of applications. And even God himself says that he causes the wrath of man to glorify his name. So if our father can do that, we certainly can do that. And there's no shortage of places in Scripture where the Lord himself uses the examples of unbelievers. You know, the examples of Sodom and Gomorrah, the examples of places where the Lord says, now learn from this. All right. And that's what we have here. There's something to learn from with respect to this unrighteous steward. Keep in mind, though, that this passage is an extension of what we studied under chapter 15. And I tried to establish that 
context and that linkage between the two chapters in main point one. Oftentimes in the Life of Christ series, the first point of, of any outline of any episode uh, establishes the context for uh, the setting of uh, this particular message. And that's what we have here. The parable from chapter 15 gives way to the additional parables and a true illustration the additional parables and messages in verses 1 through 18, and then the illustration, uh, the story of Lazarus and the rich man, I don't believe is a parable, I believe it's an illustration, and we'll see that, uh, I'm guessing, next week when we get to uh, that section of the chapter. Uh, squandering gives us our text link between the two chapters. Squandering was a big theme in chapter 15 with the prodigal son, that he uh, demanded his inheritance and then he promptly went out and squandered it. And it's that verb that links the activities between chapter 15 and chapter 16 because it was reported to this rich man that his steward was was, uh, squandering his possessions. In chapter 15, the issue was heavenly rejoicing. That continues to be the issue here because in chapter 16, the uh, impact is going to come from the uh, concept of heavenly reward. And what is it that we are laying up treasures for? What is it that we are preparing for if we are thinking truly long term on an eternal scale? And uh, perhaps you've not um, gathered that yet. Perhaps you've not yet seen the a place of heavenly reward here in uh, chapter 16, but uh, I'm hoping you will before we uh, conclude our session here today. Remember, I think in, in large respect, the main point from the prodigal son is often missed as well. If we focus on the money, if we focus on the fatted calf, if we focus on the celebration, uh, this, those are simply um, uh, settings Those are simply uh, external circumstances. The real issue in the fellowship of chapter 15 is the relationship between the father and the sons. That uh, both sons had relationship, but one son had forfeited fellowship. And the fact that fellowship could be restored became the the great uh, principle there. Um, And and so the... uh, when he says, and I'm just going to glance real quickly here in 1531, he said to him, son, you have always been with me. Okay, The proximity, the idea of with me, the idea of fellowship, that the older son never did depart, never did break fellowship or, or was not uh, dead in the family relationship sense. And now the younger son has come back. He's begun to live again. We have fellowship once again. That's the point. And it matches up with the rejoicing in heaven. The sheep gets found. Heaven rejoices. The coin gets found. Heaven rejoices. The boy comes back. All right. And yes, you understand it as heaven rejoices, but it's explained more fully because the father is having fellowship with his son. See, that's the cause for rejoicing. So the idea of the father having fellowship with the son is what we get here in chapter 15. We move on to chapter 16 and there's additional fellowship that comes into play. Not just the father having fellowship with his son. Yes, that's true. You and I will have eternal fellowship with the father, with the son. Uh, We will have that for all eternity and glory. But we will also have our fellowship with one another in the body of Christ. And that's where we start to uh, understand the application coming from here in chapter 16 the houses that we will be invited into in uh, in glory now i really hope i mean you've got mansions prepared for you right and and uh, we do you do i do 
All right, as far as that goes, mine's probably just going to be a little condo efficiency or something. But uh, I hope when we get there that um, I'll have an invite at some point, right? Maybe uh, after 10,000 years or 20,000 years or something, you can squeeze me into your eternal schedule there, right? And uh, have a chance to come by and visit and fellowship and, and worship together. All right, well... Consider what this passage is really talking about when it uses this unrighteous steward. He's uh, desperate to try to ingratiate himself in uh, the minds of his peers. And of course, his peers are wicked, just like he is. His peers are selfish, just like he is. And so he is going to manipulate things so that he has um, a selfish uh, motivation for being welcomed by his selfish friends. Okay? Swap all that out now for our application. We are uh, godly. Our friends are godly. And those that we're going to fellowship with for all eternity, we want to fellowship with with the right motivation. Okay? And hopefully that will come across here because that's really the point of this, uh, of this parable. All right, under point two then, the uh, outline we got through A, B, and we were running out of time with C. So... Um, Let's just rapidly run through it, and then we'll go through the stewardship principles that we have to look at here today. So point two, the unrighteous steward teaches a spiritual truth. And I won't reread the story. I think everyone was here last week. So um, what was this spiritual truth? Well, uh, let's run through it. So point A, the steward manages another's household. That's what a steward is. Oikonomos. He doesn't own the household, but he runs it. He manages it. It's a delegated responsibility. And remember, it is required of a steward to be faithful. We gave you an illustration out of Josephus. Of course, there's also the story of Joseph in Potiphar's house in Genesis 39. Uh, stewardship demands faithfulness from 1 Corinthians 4.2. If you are not faithful in your stewardship, you will find the stewardship, the exercise of those privileges will be suspended, will be revoked. Now, Let's understand as far as our application goes, though, stewardship is not a personal vestment, but a corporate vestment. You can't the church will never lose stewardship so long as the church is still on earth. The church will be raptured and our stewardship will be complete. Uh, Stewardship is not vested in you or I as individual members of the body. The stewardship is vested in the body. You understand that? So when we are faithless, if a church age believer today flakes out. Uh, then you and I will forfeit our privilege of operating within the stewardship that belongs to the corporate body, that belongs to the church. All right. Same thing when Israel had the corporate stewardship. An individual loser, uh, believer, not walking in the light, uh, turning into carnality. See, he doesn't, uh, uh, it's not forsaking, or Israel doesn't lose their stewardship because an individual Jewish knucklehead believer goes carnal. All right. But that Jew, that individual reversionistic believer, he is going to forsake his privilege of operating within the stewardship that belongs to the corporate body of Israel. You understand that? Okay. well, then we're good on that on an individual basis. Of course, an individual steward uh, is subject to being fired. And that's what happens here, uh, that he is put on notice as to his being fired. That's point B. The rich Lord gives the steward a deadline for dismissal and accountability. And uh, the deadline is maybe not as obvious in verse 2, but when you see in the following verses that he has some time to go ahead and and, uh, 
uh, close out some accounts and reconcile some other accounts. And there is a time frame involved, which you get from the subsequent verses. So I call this a deadline for dismissal and accountability. This causes the steward to consider his post stewardship circumstances. And when I phrase it this way, I do it for a reason. I'm phrasing it this way. I don't know that the steward would phrase it that way. The steward is just looking out for his neck. All right. But I'm phrasing it this way so that we understand what the parallel is in our application. The steward is considering his post stewardship circumstances. What am I going to do after this stewardship is done? And uh, he realizes he's kind of pathetic in some ways is that he's not uh, strong enough to dig. He's really not suited for uh, manual labor, outdoor work. He's not a, he's not a, a blue collar kind of guy. And yet, uh, because of his embezzlements and his uh, malfeasance and so forth, he's not going to be hired by anyone else in a, in a white collar position. So what's he going to do? He can't do either. He's, he's, uh, understands his uh, circumstances here aren't too, uh, aren't too good. Well, just by the way I phrase that point B, I think you can start to see where we're going to go with this. Uh, do you ever consider your post-stewardship circumstances? In other words, do you ever consider what you are laying the groundwork for here in time for when you get to glory? See, that's what it's all about. Our whole time here on earth is a sojourn that is preparing the way for post-stewardship because the church will not always be the steward. The church is raptured and the stewardship on earth is vested back in Israel once again. Our steward, the, the body of Christ's stewardship is over with the rapture. In fact, he doesn't even return in the, in the millennial kingdom either, by the way. I hope you understand that. We're the bride and that's not a stewardship function. It's a bride function. And uh, there's more to, more to say on that. But anyway, let's consider our post-stewardship circumstances. And then in such a way we can then imitate this unrighteous steward all right point c then the steward negotiated shrewd business deals he negotiated shrewd business deals ahead of his accountability deadline and that's what we see described here in verses five through seven and uh and we don't know i you know it's obviously he had a background for this he had an aptitude for this a talent for this he also had a keen uh sense of uh, where the market was, shall we say. He had uh, a, a precise estimation of his clients and uh, what they could uh, afford as far as it goes. As we see here in verse 5, he summoned each one of his master's debtors and he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Just... Remarkable business uh, acumen here. I, I think the, the wisdom that he has, he's going to close out everything he can, but he's going to work with them one-on-one, and none of the other clients understand what the deal is that he's cutting with each of the other ones. You understand? He's taking them one at a time. He's also pressuring them. Sit down quickly. Write it out quickly. Let's settle this now. Right? Just like a, you know, a used car salesman that you deal with anymore. They don't want you to think things through. Oh, the last thing they want is for you to go home and sleep on it overnight. No, no, no. you got to decide now. This deal's only good now. My manager says it's only good now kind of a thing. And they play you off with the... It's all a bunch of fraud anyway, but that's the way it is. And uh, so he negotiates the 50% payment on the first one. You think, wow, that's a tremendous discount. 
Is he stealing from his master here? What's he doing? But the other one, he only cuts it off from uh, 100 to 80. He said 100 measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. So why does customer number one get a 50% break and customer number two only gets a 20% break? Why does he still have to fork over 80 on his uh, on his loan? What happened again? I thought I did that. Let's, uh, yes. Remind me in one day. There we go. I don't know why they choose Wednesdays to do their software updates. Okay. Either have to figure out how to adjust that configuration setting or we have to just move our class to Thursday or something. <laughs> Got to figure something out. All right. We don't know. The text here does not say why or how or some of the reasonings and so forth. Also, we don't have all the details we have. How much of that hundred is uh, represents... Uh, the master's money and how much of it represents the markup, the inflation that uh, that the steward had. Maybe as far as the master goes, maybe the master only owed 50. Uh, maybe that's all that the master owed. The rest of it was his own uh, skimming of the profits, which he was entitled to. The steward was entitled to profit as uh, so far as he made his master money, you understand. Uh, same thing with the 80. Maybe he needed the 80 because that's what the master was entitled to. Uh, whatever the case is, we, we don't have the exact details on it. It may be that the master only had 20. And this guy is just absolutely uh, raking some some exorbitant extortionary rates, which if, uh, if they're Jews is a violation of Mosaic law. They weren't to have such extortionary race. They weren't alone with usury and, and, uh, and all the rest. If this man is a Roman political official, then his Senate career is on the line. All right, Because senators were restricted in the kind of business dealings they could participate in. And they could have income as it, as it related to um, land or, or land use production but they could not engage in speculative trading. They could not engage in commodity markets and some of these other banking and business practices. Uh, they did it all the time. They just had to do it under the table. They couldn't get caught, see. And uh, some were better at it than others. Crassus was the, the pinnacle for the entire Republic era, the richest man, some say the richest man to ever walk the earth, if you equate everything over over uh, equivalent time periods. But... Um, if this man's a Roman and his Senate career is on the line and his servant's going to blow it by his uh, shady dealings, then you understand why it's so serious. This uh, steward stands to be crucified then for bringing the master to such shame. Whatever the case, the uh, business deals are very shrewd. The term is shrewd uh, for uh, praise. So point one then. This is point C, main point two, point C, point one. The Lord praised the steward for his shrewdness. Okay? Shrewdness. Think of character traits that we admire. <laughs> right? Or character traits that we, that the Bible praises. Alright? Uh, the fruit of the Spirit is, uh, no, shrewdness isn't in there. Alright? And yet, okay, the Scripture does call upon us to be shrewd as serpents while remaining harmless as a dove. So it's not a spirit produced character trait. The the filling of the Holy Spirit does not generate a supernatural God-given shrewdness, you understand. 
But there is a shrewdness. The, the term phronimos is a temporal life situation. It comes from humanity. It comes from thinking. And we're supposed to use our thinking, right? We're supposed to use the thinking skills God gives us. And yet not crossing into the realms of humanity and double dealing and, and treachery and, and uh, the evils of, of uh, this fallen world. That's the difference. So being praised for his shrewdness. Phronimos is the term. Uh, P-H-R-O-N-I-M-O-S. Phronimos. Uh, it comes from frain. The frain uh, is, is a thinking term. Phreno, to think or to distinguish between things. Um, it's uh, the, the frain that's underneath all our, like schizophrenic, is where the frain has been schizoed. It has been divided. All right. Uh, frenetic activity or there's other fren. Do we have other friend words? I'm sure we must have other friend words besides schizophrenic. I've got to find a friendlier illustration than schizophrenic for uh, phronimos. And then phronimos. You take phronimos, lengthen the omicron to an omega, and you turn phronimos into phronimos. And uh, it's number 5430. Uh, phronimos, the adjective, has 14 uses. Phronimos only has the one. And this is what he's being praised for. For being shrewd. You want your uh, business managers to be shrewd. You want your the people that are managing your books to know what they're doing. You want uh, the people that are uh, <clears throat> monitoring your investments to know what they're doing. You don't want them to be stupid about what they're doing. Just in, in earthly terms, in a business sense. And if they do know what they're doing and they're shrewd about it, then uh, you're better off. Now, the, another explanation comes from Jesus, and this is where he steps out of character. This is where, um, as we look at it here in, in verse 8, his, manager, uh, his master praised the unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly. And then four, the, here comes an editorial statement, an explanation. This is the Lord talking to his disciples. This is a little bit out of, uh, uh, what is that called in theater or in, in uh, film, when uh, all of a sudden in the, the, the kind of the action stops and then they turn to the audience and they actually speak to the audience. And it's kind of fourth wall. That's what it is. Thank you. Breaking the fourth wall. It's kind of where you're, yeah talking to the real world, and then returning back into your fantasy world of, of whatever. Okay, And that's what we have here. What's it called when a pastor scrambles for an illustration and gets help from his audience? <laughs> Could be a term for that. All right. Um, so in verse 8, there's the master. And as I said, just because the master is praising him don't, doesn't make it right. Okay. Who's to say the master's righteous? Right? We don't know if the master's righteous or the master's unrighteous. We're not told. And also, how did he get rich in the first place? We don't know. Probably through the same business shenanigans this guy's doing. All right? They might be birds of a feather. They might be he's very happy with the guy. He's just not happy that the guy got caught, so now he's got to replace him with someone even sneakier. So don't take the praise of the master quite uh, for everything, it's the one thing you can take the master's praise for, though, is to recognize that this steward isn't stealing from him. The steward's not uh, not not ripping him off and 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 headed for the hills with as much plunder as he can, because uh, the master's not unhappy with what the steward's doing. The master's praising the steward. 
That's I think that's certainly one thing we can take away from that praise in verse eight. But this explanation, the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. This is the editorial comment. This is Jesus statement and explanation to his disciples, to the reader, to to us here reading this text. That uh, when it comes to the business dealing, now does this mean a, a Christian can't be a businessman? Well, he can be a businessman. And God can bless him, certainly. And he can have some business wisdom, absolutely. Alright, and you ought to pray for that, and you ought to develop that, and train that, and work hard to do that. Um, I think a Christian businessman ought to be outstanding and, and strive for excellence in all that he does. Because he's serving the Lord, and and... And so he ought to be honorable to his corporation, to his stockholders, to his business partners, and and uh, and everything else. However, having said all that, he will have a certain handicap. He will be hamstrung, in a way, because he will have restrictions in terms of his own integrity, his own character, his own ethics, his own uh, godliness, that will not permit him to engage in certain practices and methods and features that uh, his competitors have available to them. Because his competitors won't have the same scruples. They won't have the same ethics. And uh, as such then, he's entering into the uh, game, as it were. He's entering into the competition against opponents that have an edge. Does that make sense? Because the, the realm of, of, uh, of uh, business, the realm of commerce, and it doesn't matter, it matters not a whit whether you're talking capitalistic, socialistic, communistic, um, matters not a bit. There are folks that are good and folks that are not so good and folks that cheat and folks that make money and, and all the rest. So, the, um, Jesus explains that the unrighteous sons of this age are more suited to, uh, to the unrighteous business dealings of this unrighteous world than believers. We're, we're, really, we're fish out of water if it, when it comes down to it. Uh, that's not our world anymore. We're in the world, but no longer of the world. It's, it'd be like uh, taking a, a, you know, a mako shark and uh, having a very fast fish from what I understand and, and uh, having them race against a cheetah. Who's going to win? I didn't tell you yet whether the race was on land or in the water. All right. So who's going to win? See, well, what in what venue, in what environment, in what realm does the cheetah have the edge, and in what realm does the does the mako uh, fish, a shark, have the edge? See, you, you understand. In the cosmos system, in the the unrighteous wealth. Unrighteous wealth is what it's called here. Down in uh, verse 11, we're going to see there's a contrast between unrighteous wealth and true riches. And we're going to have to explain that because uh, some people jump on that verse and, and they want to say that, oh, all money is bad. It's not, what, it's not what that passage is saying. But if you're going to contrast earthly tender with heavenly tender, then absolutely you have to call our heavenly tender righteous and all earthly tender is unrighteous. See, as a contrast between the earthly and the heavenly, you can't give them any other labels. 
So the unrighteous are more suited to the unrighteous business dealings of this unrighteous world. So, do you want uh, your uh, business manager, whoever it is that's uh, uh, monitoring your portfolio, you want uh, a believer or an unbeliever? <laughs> Ooh, loaded question. Well... What about the guy that fixes your car? You want a believer or an unbeliever fixing your car? <laughs> what about the EMS guy that's there to, to save your life? You care if he's saved or, or not? Anyway, these are questions, and, and I'm not answering them, you notice, um, because I believe in your liberty, you can answer this question either way. You can, you, you can have godly reasons to want uh, to have a believer fix your car. And godly reasons to have an unbeliever fix your car. See? Because there's ministry opportunity either way. You've got a gospel opportunity if you have dealings with an unbeliever where you can uh, have opportunities to discuss things with the Lord. Uh, and then, obviously, if you're uh, contracting with a, a believer, then you've got other opportunities for fellowship and blessings there. Uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, last week, I spent a bunch of money at a place that, you know, it would have been kind of fun to be able to help uh, Sean, Car uh, Sean uh, Williams. I would have much rather have paid him instead of paying this other guy, but it didn't work out. You know, Sean wasn't available and I needed the thing fixed, so I ended up paying another place instead of Sean. I would have preferred... You know, give give Sean some money, you know, as far as that goes. But anyway, so you have your reasons. Uh, what if the uh, what if the unbeliever actually uh, has lower prices? What if he uh, produces better uh, results? Is your conscience OK using an unbeliever for something? If uh, if you're going to benefit from it in the end, if you're going to actually have more money at the end, for example, I'm using this simply because I want us to be able to relax and have the grace towards fellow believers when they make different choices for different reasons, but they're still valid in the way that they do. All right? Because uh, I know believers, their conscience will not let them, uh, for example, buy books at Barnes & Noble. Okay? Or go get a, a, a cappuccino at Starbucks or whatever. I mean, they've, they, they object to the business practices of the, of the certain companies and the things they're doing. And so they, they just they say, you know what? I don't want to participate in that. I don't want to contribute towards that. And that's their choice. And, and I don't, I'm not mocking them for that. It's a free country so far. Um, spend your money where you want to. All right. Now, somebody else may, though, have a... And, and so they want to buy at christianbook.com instead of amazon.com or, or what have you. All right. Well, what if it costs more? And they say, well, you know what? I'm willing to pay more. Yeah, it's $3 more, but I want to support christianbook.com. I think it's a good ministry. It's a good business. I like them. So I'm going to pay $3 more for this book at christianbook.com because I want to. Well, great. You're free to do that. And you've got right reasons and uh, glorify Christ and bear fruit and do all you're doing there. But another believer can come along and say, look at that, I can save three bucks. And by saving three bucks, he's 
mindful of his stewardship. He has more money than he's saving. He can contribute to his church or feed his family or whatever he's doing, right? You buy books first, then you feed your family. That's the order I'm, I'm the order I always follow. Um, anyway, I'm drifting here to illustrate, but you understand. Um, you want an unbeliever ma- managing your retirement portfolio? There's reasons. Um, do you want a, a believer managing your retirement portfolio? There's reasons there too. So make your choices unto the Lord, but do them for the right reasons. And uh, and then happy is he who does not condemn himself and that which he approves. Relax over the, the liberty that God's given you in uh, in our present age of grace. To me, the real principle here comes out of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You remember that verse? 1 Corinthians 7.31. Now, I know a pastor that taught 1 Corinthians once. 1 Corinthians 7.31. See, our use of this world is limited. I say this, brethren, the time has been shortened, so from now on those who have wives ought to be as though they had none. And understand the doctrine there, you get in trouble in your marriage. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. Those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. See, use, but not full use. To me, it's just... uh, and that's a that's a summary statement right there in verse 31 that kind of tells the whole paragraph all on its own. For the form of this world is passing away. world's not going to come to an end, but the present schematic, the present form is. This cosmos is passing away along with it. It's lust. A whole new schematic is coming about when Jesus Christ uh, conquers and takes over. So our use of the world is limited. Of course, we're going to use... Legal tender. We're going to use uh, the U.S. dollar. We have the the legal medium of exchange in our culture. We're going to use banks, and we're going to use uh, grocery stores, and we're going to use. I mean, we we live in the world. We're not of the world, but we still live here. All right. I can't just go claim a mansion for myself and say, "Well, God promised me mansion, so I'm going to take the governor's mansion." You know, <laughs> that's not my mansion. I still have to live in the world and, and participate in the, uh, the economy of things here, rendering unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. So our use of the world is limited. Use but not full use. And that's why I said a Christian businessman who maintains his walk according to biblical standards is not making full use of the cosmos because there are the illegal, immoral, unethical, shady um, underhanded uh, and profitable procedures that this world thrives in. And um, the Christian businessman doesn't have uh, access to that. And he doesn't want the access to that. He knows that he's dealing in, in a, uh, on a limited basis and he's leaving things in the hands of the Lord to honor and to bless and provide. And so we can appreciate that as well. Now, thirdly, The Lord used the unrighteous steward's example for our righteous application. He goes on. Not only has he broken that fourth wall in verse 8, 
But while he's out there, he goes ahead and amplifies in verse 9. Because he goes on to say, and now I say to you. See, in verse 8, he's already broken through and he's speaking about the world in general. He's making an application there. Uh, But then in verse 9, he goes even a step further and he has a personal, direct exhortation to his 12 disciples. I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness. By means of the mammona, mammon. Elsewhere, of course, we had you cannot serve God and mammon. All right. Yeah, it's not this passage, but that's the other use of mammon in the Gospels. All right. Mammona, mammon. You cannot serve both God and mammon. I know I put that in here. (laughs) Maybe I didn't. But you know the passage I'm talking about. All right. Here's the item for praise. The Lord doesn't say, I say to you, be wicked and evil and underhanded and and shady just like this guy. He's not saying that. (laughs) But he's saying, here's your application. It's what he did, only you do it this way. Make friends for yourselves. What was he doing? He was friend making. He was trying to set himself up for post stewardship. He was trying to make friends the way the world makes friends so that he would have worldly friends in a worldly context later on. We want to do something similar. We want to make friends. And we're going to use the world's wealth like he used the world's wealth. But the best news is is that our friends aren't worldly friends. Because our friends understand the same thing we understand, that this worldly wealth is going away. And then, what are we going to do? What are they going to do? Not only is it, what am I going to do when the stewardship's over, but what are my friends going to do when that stewardship's over? Because we're all going to be with the Lord in glory. So I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, when the wealth of unrighteousness is no longer the uh, medium of exchange. When you are uh, no longer in the earthly setting and uh, can no longer use earthly currency. You understand that? There's no ATM in heaven. Right? You're not going to take a cash withdrawal of some uh, earthly currency. That's why you've got to be laying up that treasure in heaven. When it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. That you and they together for all eternity are going to have a basis for fellowship and friendship for all eternity. Alright? That's the application being made here. So, spelling it out for you. Some point A. What was it that the unrighteous steward was doing? The unrighteous steward financially benefited those with whom he intended to enjoy post-stewardship, hospitality, and fellowship. He's setting himself up. He needs a place to to stay. He's going to be a moocher and a freeloader. He's going to be... uh, (laughs) He... um, He's going to start doing some favors now so he can call the favors in. That's the way the world works. The unrighteous steward financially benefited. And he cut him some deals. The one guy cut a 50% deal. 
The other guy, he cut in a, a smaller deal, but it was a deal nonetheless. And so he's financially benefiting. Who do you financially benefit? Who do you uh, provide for? Who do you give gifts to? Who do you spend your money on? You know, it's interesting. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And you find you really find out uh, the priority of a person's thinking based on uh, the the uh, proportion of their expenditures. You know, I have a a book budget, and uh, I have a um, a goof off budget, a movie budget, or whatever. Right? Go to movies, or go to baseball games, or whatever it is that I used to do for entertainment back when I. Did that kind of a thing. Well, what are the proportions? All right. If I, if I have if I'm spending uh, you know a certain amount every year on books, on study materials, on uh, the the uh, things that help me to pastor better and understand the scripture better and work better and, and minister and all that. Uh, if I have a certain amount that I'm spending there, but then uh, my uh, my golf money is five times that. Or my goof off money, or my travel money, or whatever. See, it simply identifies the priority. It identifies the priority. Our temporal friendship spending, our temporal friendship spending, make friends by means of money. Now, the idea of making friends is a little awkward in the Greek, and, and it doesn't come across in the in the English as well, but. Can you buy friends? Yeah, I mean, there's some kinds of friends you can probably buy, right? <laughs> uh, but get over the idea of buying friends and get over, get over the idea of making friends. Um, just consider this temporal friendship spending. Because you may not buy friends, but you spend money on them, right? Don't you, uh, I mean, you... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You buy them lunch, or you you buy them gifts, or you spend money on them. You know, and in fact, when you're dating, you spend a lot of money on them because you're you know you're friends and you're liking them and you want them to like you and you're courting and whatever else. Um, and and it's it's you don't spend that kind of money on your enemies, right? You don't or strangers. See. Uh, but in your in your friendship expense budget, you know whatever you spend on meals and gifts and friends and whatever, you know, um, may not be the best title, but it's the one I came up with. I call it temporal friendship spending. It's just money you fork out, and you don't mind it. Is it's part of being a friend? You know, they do the same thing for you. Doesn't matter. You're somewhere and you see something and, and it's something they want and you say, hey, I'll buy that for you. It's no big deal. And you can return the favor or, you know, whatever it is. I'll buy lunch today. You buy lunch next time. It's just what friends do. Okay. So. Do we choose or do we recognize that the the earthly activity that takes place here on earth actually is far more than just simply earthly activity where actually the, the the benefit is not just simply the the uh, experience of something on earth but you're actually fostering a fellowship that's going to last far beyond time and space 
you can foster a friendship far beyond time and space. All right. Some of my closest friends to this day are the kids I grew up in church with. And, you know, I don't spend a lot of time with them anymore. I left Washington State 20 plus years ago. But they're still some of my closest friends on planet Earth. Why? Because we used to play volleyball in Susan Mitchell's backyard or we used to throw a football in the basement or, you know. I've done a lot more things more frequently with a lot of different people, but not producing the same eternal fellowship and friendship. See, it's beyond time and space. Our temporal friendship spending should likewise benefit those with whom we will enjoy post-stewardship, eternal hospitality and fellowship. Eternal hospitality and fellowship. See, the steward just wanted a place where he could hang out once the stewardship was over. We want the same thing, but we understand that where we're hanging out are the mansions that he's gone to prepare. And the fellowship we're going to enjoy with one another is the uh, fellowship with the saints. This is why it's tragic when, when believers can't get along. It's like spoiled brat kids or something. And you just get along, work at it. Right? I'm going to put you in a corner, separate you. What's going on here? Get along. If you can't get along now, you're really going to hate it when you get to heaven. You're going to be there with them forever. <laughs> right? So how about getting along now? Develop it now. Foster that. Build that. Work that. All right? Where is it we're choosing our temporal friendship? See, and I think this is the difference. Uh, as far as how we relate to unbelievers, we want to have connections. We may have business dealings. We don't want to be unequally yoked, but we want to have some kind of approach to an unbeliever, a business basis or a, something where we can witness to them. But we're not developing rapport. How can we? What fellowship hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Belial? Say, what harmony? There is none. We, we have associations, but not friendships. You understand? There's a difference. Friendship with the world is hostility towards God. So, in different things, I, uh, uh, in, in times past, I had co-workers and they'd want to go shoot pool after work. All right, well, maybe once or a couple times, what have you. Uh, yeah, I'll go a couple times, or, you know, at the most, whatever, three, but, you know, the, the point being, it's going to be limited. They're not saved. I don't have like-mindedness with them. I, I want to be friendly. We, we can do a couple of things, but I'll see if I can turn conversation to spiritual matters or whatever. And, and uh, but, you know, and then after a while, I'll probably just quit coming. You know, it's, it's not a big deal to me. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be there every night for 12 years. You see what I'm saying? And yet with the believer, with fellowship, yeah, sign me up. There's a huge difference. Fostering friendship. And so when it says make friends for yourself by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, that means use earthly money in earthly friendships with those that you're going to spend eternity with so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. All right. Anyway, there's there's other things I think we can illustrate with that, but let's go ahead and let that go for now. I think that's uh, 
probably enough on that. I do want to take some time, though, to deal with our fundamental principles of stewardship. And our main point three, fundamental principles of stewardship are then detailed in verses 10 through 13. The discourse for application that comes out of the parable then gets spelled out. Fundamental principles of stewardship are then detailed. I think we can glean uh, not only earthly application, but we recognize since it's a stewardship context, it certainly applies in our role as stewards, in our role as a part of the body of Christ and the stewardship that the body of Christ has in the things of the Lord. So main point three in the outline, fundamental principles of stewardship are then detailed. You know, I think any study on dispensationalism has to do more than just simply draw a diagram, give you a timeline, and spell out, uh, you know, what order they come in and so forth. That's important. But how about some additional principles on stewardship? What is it the stewards are supposed to be doing? This is a passage that gives us some of these foundational principles, fundamental principles. All right, we read in verse 10, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. So the small things illustrate how bigger things are going to be handled. Either on a righteous basis or an unrighteous basis. A faithful basis or an unfaithful basis. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? There's a contrast there between the earthly and the heavenly. And if you have not been um, faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? There's a contrast there as well. And then finally, no servant can serve two masters. Oh, there it is. I knew it was in here. For either he will hate the one and love the other, Or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or wealth. All right, these are our principles of stewardship. First of all, stewardship is a contrast between faithfulness and unrighteousness in proportionate terms. Sub point A. Stewardship is a contrast between faithfulness and unrighteousness. Those don't exactly seem to be antonyms, do they? But they are. They're used this way as a contrast. And so we can relate them in that, in that way. Faithfulness is righteousness. Unrighteousness is unfaithfulness when it comes to our stewardship before the Lord. Stewardship is a contrast between faithfulness and unrighteousness. And it's described in proportionate terms. In proportionate terms. That's significant. That's very significant. Because you're accountable for the proportion that you're entrusted with. The reward structure, you know there's inequality in heaven, you understand that. The reward structure is based upon your faithfulness proportionately to what you've been given. 
whether you're given one talent, five talents, ten talents. The point of your evaluation is not the raw profit that you earned, but what you did with what you were given. And so if you were given five and earned five more, you were given ten and earned ten more, or if you were given one, at least earn one more. Don't just bury it in the ground and do nothing with it. See? And that's the standard for accountability. And that's how they're evaluated in their, uh, speaking of the evaluation of Israel, but I think it applies across any stewardship. You're accountable in proportion to what you've been given. To whom much is given shall much be required. And we've been given much. More than any stewardship prior to us. You understand. So in, in that proportion, if you can think of the Gentiles as the one steward, the one talent stewardship, Israel as the five talent stewardship, and the church as the ten talent stewardship, you understand, we've been given more than any previous dispensation in the history of the earth. And we're going to be evaluated. And we're not going to we're not going to have an automatic ticket to great things because, uh, wow, look at that. We've got ten talents. That's what we started with. What did we do with them? And we may have done less than the Gentiles did with their single talent or less than what the Jews did with their five talents. Okay. So here's the contrast. Now, again, in verse 10, we notice the... Um, The difference between little and much also can be thought of in terms of a preparation and training opportunity. Think about the responsibilities that grow as you train children and how it is that they learn how to handle money. And you might start them off really at a young age with, with an allowance or something of that nature. But they're learning how to handle money. And they're learning that the money they receive... Uh, there's things they're expected to do with that, that uh, a, a portion of that belongs to the Lord and is to be given on a grace basis to support the ministry of the Word of God. And uh, maybe uh, you're going to instill upon them values of, I'm just illustrating, this is what we do in our family, uh, values of savings. And so, uh, you know, it's not 10 bucks in, 10 bucks out. It's There's uh, ratios and percentages, and some goes to the Lord, and some goes to savings, and some you don't touch, and and then some that you're free to do with what you will. See, but you want to, they want to, you want to learn those things. Every child wants to learn those things when the consequences are not nearly as severe. You don't want to wait to learn that kind of thing until, you know, you're married and there's bills to pay and there's a mortgage and you still have no clue how to save anything or how to how to uh, be responsible. Because if you if you blow it young, when are you going to start making better decisions? Start making better decisions now. If you have no self-control, learn it earlier rather than later and get the self-control. Develop it. And... Uh, Trust that the Father's not going to put you into something you can't handle. But think about the training ministry as well. You know, in terms of areas of service. Areas of testing. Would, would Jesus Christ have put Cliff Beverage in that lampstand had He not been faithful in the steps leading up to that? See, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And that's why the the seminary training is a, is a proving ground. It's a it's a, a, a field in which faithfulness is either manifested or not manifested. 
If you're faithful with little, you'll be faithful with much. Why? Because that's your attitude. That's your mindset. That's your approach. So proportionate terms. That's what stewardship's about. And consider what it is we're entrusted with here and what it is we're going to be entrusted with in glory. We're going to judge angels. We're going to rule the world. We're going to reign with Christ. There is a tremendous amount of responsibility that's going to be on our shoulders when we get there. And sadly, very few believers now are preparing for that. Secondly, I don't know where the time goes. You say, Pastor, it goes on your side trips. (laughs) It goes on your rabbit trails. Stewardship is a contrast in temporal slash eternal terms. Stewardship is a contrast in temporal slash eternal terms. That's verse 11. Temporal versus eternal. The, uh, your use of temporal money is an indicator for your approach to things of value. And so, you know, what, what value does money have anyway? What value does money have? as a um, medium of exchange, as a purchasing power, as a uh, provision for earthly living. It has a, uh, it has a uh, power. It has the, the ability to provide. Provisionary power is what I was thinking of. Purchasing power, provisionary power. But it also has an enslaving power if you're not careful. It will control you. You've got to make sure that you control money and money doesn't control you. Like alcohol, who's in charge? Are you making the decision or is the alcohol making the decision? Same thing with money. Are you controlling your finances or are your finances controlling you? And how you're living your daily life. So your approach to money is an indicator, it's a window to the soul, it's an indicator of how you approach the true wealth. How you approach the true wealth. You say, well, I don't much think about it. Better give it some thought. Are you using your true wealth? Not only laying up treasure in heaven, that's on the deposit side of things, but what are you spending on with your heavenly wealth? What are you withdrawing from those assets to purchase with that wealth? There's more than just laying up treasure in heaven. Yes, that's part of it. But what else are you doing? You also have to spend in the heavenly marketplace. You have to spend and be expended in the heavenly marketplace. Jesus says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined and to buy from me eyesalve to anoint your eyes. Anyway, we'll have more to say on that. But there's a contrast between temporal and eternal. That's the same thing that holds true. And it's part of what is contrasted in terms of uh, observing a man and his preparation for ministry. Why the passage says, look at his home life. What kind of wife does he have? What kind of children does he have? What's his home life like? If his home life's a wreck, what kind of pastor is he going to be? That's why it's a qualification in 1 Timothy chapter 3. If uh, if he's a tyrant in the home, what's he going to be in the pulpit? 
right? If he's a brutal man, if he's a violent man, what kind of pastor is he going to be like? If he's a, a pushover, a softy, his, uh, you know, his daughter just uh, bats her eyes and has him wrapped around her little pinky finger and he just gives in and surrenders anything she wants. <laughs> Uh-oh, where'd that come from? What, uh, well, what kind of pastor is he going to be? When, uh, you know, uh, a, a spiritual daughter, a church daughter, a, a woman in the church comes up and starts crying. Oh, 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 that's okay. It's okay. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. Well, you know, daddy will make it all better. We'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. I'll pay for that. It's all right. You're okay. Is the pastor going to tell the, the church person that? Oh, it's okay. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Right. You'll be all right. We'll figure something out. Or is the pastor going to say, you're making dumb choices. You're facing consequences. The hand of divine discipline's on you. Wake up. Get in the Word. Humble yourself. Anyway, there's a contrast between temporal and eternal. It's a feature of a facet of, of uh, stewardship. There's two more, too, but... I'm already uh, four minutes over. I did take four extra minutes because we started late. Um, there's a contrast between that which others own and that which we own. I'll highlight more on that next week. And then uh, God and mammon are mutually exclusive objects. And uh, we really have to highlight that. And I don't want to just try to throw it at you in a 10-second blurb before we close in prayer. But um, we're serving and we're worshiping whether we know it or not. We want to make sure we're serving God and worshiping God and using money as simply a tool, a device. It serves us. You understand? Because if you turn it around backwards, then you're worshiping money, you're serving money, and God is just a tool. You make God serve you in your worship of money. And that's backwards. You want to make money serve you in your worship of God. You cannot serve God and mammon. Well, Father, thank you for this day, for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness in Christ's name. Amen.